0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, according to a new Angus Reid poll, the ascension of Pierre Polyev has given the Conservative Party an uptick in voter popularity. But is it too soon to say that he's got it in the bag yet? Why are Chinese police operating in Canada while our own government and security services seem to be looking the other way? And the trophy awarded to Canada's Athlete of the Year is getting a new name, we hope. Mark Hebsher, longtime sports broadcaster, author and host of Hebsey on Sports, He'll join us to talk about it. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. We know that, you know, the Conservatives have a new leader. Pierre Polyev was elected a couple of weeks ago. And uh, we know that uh, there's a a big, big buildup, I guess, about what's going to be happening uh, in the House of Commons over the next little while with Trudeau versus Polyev. They had one meeting really so far. Uh, uh, Last Thursday and uh, the usual political stuff and the bombast that goes on. But but more importantly, a number of polling agencies here in this country have uh, well taken the temperature of the Canadian public about how we're feeling about the political scene right now. And it it paints an interesting picture. Uh, The liberals, of course, are in a minority government. And we know that uh, Justin Trudeau's popularity ratings have taken a real beating in the last little while. So there was a a lot of expectation about, okay, how do Canadians feel? Well, earlier this week, uh, we told you about a Main Street poll that was done that showed that the uh, Conservatives had a pretty substantial lead over the Liberals in popularity. And that's one poll, and you figure, okay, that's a snapshot, but is it really accurate? However... Uh, In the last couple of days, a couple of other polls have come out that uh, pretty much uh, amplify that that feeling and that trend that seems to be going on. Uh, The Conservatives have opened up a slightly wider lead over the Liberals and a poll that was done for Global News by Ipsos. Global's Jeff Smith has the details on that.
1: The poll finds new leader Pierre Poiliev and the Conservatives at 35% of the decided vote if an election were held tomorrow. That's up one since last year's election. Justin Trudeau and the Liberals have slipped three to 30%. The New Democrats, led by Jagmeet Singh, are up two to 20%. The Bloc Québécois support within Quebec of 32% would equate to 7% of the national vote. The People's Party and the Green Party would each get three and the remaining two for another party. The undecided vote is at 14% while 10% say they wouldn't vote. The Conservatives lead in the western five provinces, the Liberals lead in the Atlantic region, and are in a statistical tie with the bloc in Quebec. The poll was done between September 19th and 21st. Jeff Smith, Global News.
0: So there's the Ipsos poll that was done for Global News. We told you about the Main Street poll, and and, uh, sandwiched in between that was an abacus poll Uh, That had very similar results to to what Jeff Smith was just referring to. So is there a trend going on here? And what can we read into this? Uh, Well, to analyze that, we're pleased to welcome to the program Clifton Vanderlinden, who is the director of Digital Society Lab at McMaster University. Uh, Clifton, a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today.
2: Thanks for having me, Bill.
0: I mean, you're an, an analyst, you look at these things, you crunch the numbers, and you're looking for trends in, in a situation like this. Uh, I, I understand that any given poll is really just a snapshot in time of the particular time that, you know, that, that person picked up the phone or decided, they, okay, they were going to take part in the poll. But when you see three major uh, polling situations like this, all with the same basic numbers and the same basic results, do you see a trend here?
2: Well, I think it adds to the robustness of the findings. So, uh, you know, if there's sampling error in one particular poll, but you see uh, other firms with other results that uh, uh, corroborate the evidence that you see in that particular poll, it suggests that it's probably a um, um, a, a valid finding of public opinion at this moment in time. So I think that there is a, a trend. I think it's not unsurprising. Uh, in a lot of ways, for the trend to emerge as it has. Uh, often when you get um, a highly um, publicized leadership race and uh, sort of the crowning of a new leader of a party, there is a boost in support uh, for that party. Um, and there, there's also a tactical win on the part of PolyEvra, who's been able to court um, voters that voted for the People's Party of Canada in the last federal election and really win them over and so consolidate that particular segment of the population in a way that's seen a real gain for the Conservatives in recent polls.
0: That's an interesting sidebar to this, too, isn't it? Uh, When the last federal election took place, and and of course there was the expectation then that Aaron O'Toole was going to win that and he would be the next prime minister, it didn't happen. Uh, But one of the reasons for that, and I'm glad you pointed it out, really, uh, Clifton, is uh, uh, a lot of people that were, quote-unquote, conservative supporters gravitated to Maxime Bernier and the People's Party. I think they went up to about 5%, I think, in, in that particular time this polling here by all three of them really seems to indicate that those people are back in the conservative tent now.
2: Yeah, I, and and I think that uh, it's the strategy for Aaron O'Toole was to try and court uh, centrist voters and see if he could win voters from the center-right uh, and even maybe the center or center-left uh, and pull them away from Trudeau in the last federal election. Um, and for a period of time in that in that campaign it did seem to be working and there he was ahead in the polls as as you suggested and then ultimately his his lead petered out and even though he got the popular vote of course lost the um um uh, the ability to form government in terms of the number of seats the conservatives won so i think polievra's strategy is quite different polievra saying you know, we're going to abandon those centrist voters and we're going to go after the chunk of voters who would have won us the election in the last uh, race. And that's the the, the voters for the PPC. And the PPC is a fairly new party. Uh, Votes, uh, most of the research that we've done has shown that votes for the PPC in the last election were largely... Uh, protest votes or grievance votes, so people were voting for the PPC because they were opposed to vaccine mandates, by and large, as opposed to some deep ideological conviction or um, uh, or identification with the PPC as a party. So those voters are easy to peel away if you if you send the right cues, and Paul Lieber done a, a particularly effective job at, uh, at sending those cues to uh, PPC voters, and I think he's reaping the rewards right now in the polls.
0: Let me ask you about that, about the ramifications even within the Conservative Party then. Uh, As you mentioned, there seems to be a trend from Polyev and from his supporters to to move the party even further to the right. I I think there was a lot of people there that weren't really happy with Aaron O'Toole who who campaigned that said he was going to do that and then tried to be a little more to the center, and he got punished and uh, basically uh, tossed out as a result of that. Uh, With Polyev doing this and gaining support and bringing back some of those people that had left to go to the People's Party, uh, is it fair to say that the progressive Conservative Party uh, is is history now the the Brian Mulrooney party the uh, the well the Peter McKay party more recently uh, those middle right people that uh, that are seemingly alienated right now do they do they have a home
2: I I I think many of them would tell you and probably have told you uh, that. Um, uh, the conservative party of Canada as of this uh, um, leadership race is no longer really a welcoming place for red Tories or, or those who would be sort of more ideologically aligned with the values of the former progressive conservative party. Um, And, but they're without a political home. And I think that uh, the conservative party is counting on a certain uh, percentage of their votes to still flow towards conservatives in the next election race. Um, And, and so they're, they're consolidating what they can of, of, Uh, that voter base, and again, really capturing the one that will take them over the line in their view, in in their strategic views, which is the more uh, right-leaning group. But it's not only right-leaning, and and that's the thing. I think uh, Erin O'Toole might well have won the last election if the vaccine mandate issue had not driven a wedge into the voter base, and particularly his position on vaccine mandates. Um, So when we look at the uh, distribution of conservative voters, traditional conservative voters, on vaccine mandates, they were quite split. So it was a no-win situation for Aaron O'Toole. He he could have supported vaccine mandates, he could have opposed them, and certain segments of the conservative voter base uh, would have um, uh, been disenfranchised by his actions. So... Uh, it really was the, in, in, in my view, at least, and based on the evidence we've collected to date, it was really the the uh, uh, People's Party of Canada and Maxime Bernier as this sort of exogenous or external factor that 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 um, uh, redrew the stakes in the election outcome. Uh, that 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 was the 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 death knell for Aaron O'Toole's uh, uh, leadership of the Conservative Party. And so I think, in order to try and avoid that kind of outcome down the road, Polyev has been planning. Uh, uh, um, this strategy of bringing those voters in for, I mean, for for months, if not um, more than a year, um, so that he doesn't end up in the same place as Aaron O'Toole after the next election. But it requires concessions, and those concessions are concessions that are steering the party further and further right. You know, it's interesting about that, and I agree with
0: your assessment, by the way, that, that red Tories right now, uh, it's, uh, you know, do not apply. Uh, but on the other side of the, of the fence, Uh, There's a lot of blue Liberals that are disenchanted with the way that Trudeau has taken the Liberal Party. The the Paul Martin, John Manley Liberals that are feeling as if this isn't my party anymore. There's a lot of orphaned voters in the middle here. And you got to wonder where they're going to go, Clifton.
2: I absolutely agree. I think that's a really sound analysis. And I think that uh, if you look at the positions that political parties take in Canada versus the positions that the average voter takes, political parties generally tend to be more extreme. Uh I mm-hmm. think in uh, the bulk of of uh, Canadian voters are actually uh more moderate than the political parties themselves. Uh and 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 yet the parties seem to be a- abandoning the center uh and leaving voters with these very with with choices that are very far removed from their more moderate uh, positions on on policy issues. Uh
0: let's I got a couple of minutes left, and let's segue that right into uh, to, the, to the prime minister, to Justin Trudeau, because one of the questions they asked uh, in the in the polling that we talked about this morning uh, was about the prime minister. And sixty six percent, two out of every three people, said that uh, his best before date is come and gone, and that, that, that there should be a new leader. Uh, that's pretty strong, and it's it's that's I think sh- part of a trend that we've seen over the last uh, number of months now. Uh, some are suggesting, although they're they're not going to say it publicly, I guess that uh, some of the political insiders are saying, "Well, maybe it's time for Justin to just like his dad did, take that walk in the snow and decide what he wants to do." Uh, would he step down? Uh, th- does he does he see what's happening here, or does he just figure this is just a moment in time? I can still do this.
2: So I I think you're you're correct to assume that discussions, you know, quiet discussions are happening in the hallways of. of uh, a parliament uh, about um the future of justin trudeau as the leader of the liberal party i think it's unlikely that he will step down before the next election but it's it's certainly not a foregone conclusion uh, you've seen this strategy work in other circumstances. So here in Ontario, you saw Dalton McGinty step down, Kathleen Wynne uh, take over the party, and and Dalton McGinty was seen as sort of sort of wearing the albatross or the anchor of of some of the sins of the the, the, the provincial liberals and uh, and cleaning house or cleaning slate so that they could continue in power under a new leader. But you've also seen this really fail, right? So you think of uh, Brian Mulroney and the transition of power to Kim Campbell and yeah. the decimation yeah. of the PCs in that election. So um, it's you know even if justin trudeau were to uh step down it's not necessarily going to uh, ensure that the liberals can carry on as a party that can form government after the next election and we also see polyevra starting to develop tactics that are, are sort of contingency planning for this possibility so at the beginning of his leadership race he he all of his targeting was on Justin Trudeau in particular, you know, just inflation and all these and, and commercials with pretending to sit down with Justin Trudeau. And uh, and now you're seeing a transition in his tactics and he's being very focused on the liberal party, the liberal agenda. So he's making space in case there is a transi- in transition in leadership that his, his uh, critiques still land and they don't walk out the door uh, with Justin Trudeau if he decides to uh, step down.
0: Of course, the, the elephant in the room here that we haven't talked about is the deal between the Liberals and the NDP. Uh, and, and, you know, we, we know that what was asked for here uh, to guarantee government until 2015. Uh, but it's non-binding. Uh, I, there's a lot of speculation right now, Clifton, that if the NDP were to back out of that deal, it would probably be political suicide because they're getting clobbered in the in the polls too, and so is Jagmeet Singh. Uh, do they hang on to that deal, or, or do you see that, that, that we might go to the polls uh, maybe much sooner than than some people are anticipating right now.
2: You know, it's a good question. My sense is that uh, the confidence and supply agreement will will remain in place until twenty twenty five for precisely the reasons you've articulated, which are that as a political strategy, it seems untenable at this moment for the NDP to uh, welcome uh, an, a federal election race. That said, you know, we have polling today does not reflect outcomes of elections tomorrow, and we have seen. Mm-hmm. All three parties, NDP, Liberals and Conservatives, trade leadership positions or lead positions in the polls during election races. And that's where the action really happens. You know, one misstep can really change the outcome of of an election. Um, uh, And we've also seen the uh, liberal defeats in federal politics uh, serve NDP um, uh, wins in some way. So, I mean, the 2011 election and Stephen Harper won, but also Jack Layton was able to form official opposition with the uh, demise of uh, Michael Ignatiev's uh, bid uh, and uh, under the leader uh, under the Liberal flag. So, there are certainly. Uh, considerations at play that maybe the NDP can can fill the gap can be the alternative to the conservatives that the liberals might not be able to be under a Justin Trudeau uh, um, um, leadership of the liberal party Uh, but I think it's a pretty uh, big bet and I I, you know if I was in the NDP war room right now uh, it's not one I'd be willing to take. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> lots of stuff going on right now It's a very fluid situation Clifton, I'm glad you had some time to sit down with us and analyze some of this data Thanks so much for this Thank you, Bill Clifton Linden, who was the Director of Digital Society Lab at McMaster University With uh, some uh, pretty solid analysis as to what's happening on the Canadian political scene. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Troubling story that we all need to pay attention to. I know we've got a lot of things on our minds with inflation, with what's going on in Ukraine, uh, and and they're all important, uh, not to diminish any of that. Uh, but the Chinese are uh, doing what the Chinese have been doing for quite some time right now. Chinese police are operating in Canada, while our own government seems to be looking the other way not doing a whole lot about this it's an interesting phenomena right now and uh, something that we need to talk about uh and to that end we're pleased to welcome back to the program charles burton charles is a senior fellow with the center for advancing canada's interests abroad at the mcdonald laurier institute charles always a pleasure thank you so much for the time today
1: good morning bill
0: Let's let's talk a little bit about your op-ed piece that uh, that I read. I was shocked. I mean, I had to reread this saying This is actually happening. Uh, we know that, that that there are subversive activities going on. Spy versus spy. Uh, you know, we've got them. They've got them. And and you know, they they could be running the uh, the grocery store that we're, we we don't know that, about this. But this is right in your face. What you talked about in the op-ed piece here, the Chinese authorities actually setting up offices here in Canada. Explain that to our listeners.
1: Well, you know, Canada and China have no extradition treaty um, because, you know, China uses torture and interrogation, um, doesn't have any due process of law or following the rules of evidence and and hands out the death penalty for a very broad range of crimes. So, But there are a lot of people in Canada who have escaped from China um, to seek refuge here for various reasons. Um, some of them are corrupt Chinese officials who... You know, get on the wrong side of factional struggle, or are being had up for for corrupt violations. Who um, purchase real estate here and reestablish in Canada, and then some of them are political dissidents who uh, you know left China and and may be quite outspoken against the regime here, and and some of them are are you know real criminals, triad gang members, and so on. Um. China wants those people back. They want to seize their assets in the Chinese system if you've if the Chinese uh, find you guilty of a crime, they seize all of your assets in the Canadian system. They just seize the proceeds of crime, the stuff you've made before you are criminal, you get to keep. But anyway, they want them back for for assortment of, of reasons. And they can't get them back through legitimate channels. They they are, will cannot work with the RCMP, which would be the proper method to Gather evidence against someone um, here in Canada because you know they're not prepared to explain the reasons, and in any event, the reasons that they want to get those people back is not consistent with Canadian law, so that wouldn't work. So what they do is they send police into Canada, um, typically invited by um, you know a Chinese association affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party's United Front. Uh, work department who say that, oh yeah, I want to see these people f- for business purposes, but they're not actually businessmen. They, the visa application to enter Canada is false. And then they go to the the person that they want to repatriate back to China and threaten the, their families in China typically and say, you know, we'll take away your mother's house, your children will not be able to um, enter university, um, your cousin will lose his job, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, and that uh, is remarkably effective in getting people to go back to china and and face uh, chinese prison the the big development that um the safeguard defenders ngo has produced in a report is that china has established 54 police offices in 30 countries designed to provide a you know an actual office space and permanent presence for these uh, chinese police um coming into our country to to, uh, intimidate, um, uh, people, many of whom are Canadian citizens. So, you know, we really shouldn't put up with this because if Canada takes action against it, China might retaliate economically as they've done before, you remember his favor, mm-hmm. uh, was a retaliation, the, the, the imposition of ridiculous non-tariff barriers on Canadian canola seeds and meat was another one. Um, and so there seems to be an attitude. In Ottawa, that it's the most important thing in Canada-China relations is the promotion of prosperity through trade and investment, and that we should just ignore these other malign activities, espionage and harassment of Canadian Tibetans and Wagers and democracy activists, and and these illegal Chinese police operations in Canada, uh, you know, to the greater good of of, of uh, benefiting Canadian business. I, I I just think this is morally bankrupt and simply wrong. And we should we should close these things down, arrest the people who are engaged in this kind of work, and expel any Chinese diplomats who are overseeing this work through their through their embassies and consulates.
0: Right at the beginning of the op-ed piece, uh, and uh, it, it, I, this really set the scene, Charles. As far as I was concerned, You talked about uh, a Chinese high-profile dr- TV drama. It's called "The Name of the People." Uh, And in this particular show, Chinese agents enter the U.S. posing as businessmen so they can repatriate a factory manager who has fled abroad with ill-gotten wealth. That's not fiction. That's what's going on, isn't it?
1: Yeah, I mean, we have, you know, and I I, I like Chinese dramas, and that one was particularly good, Um, (laughs) and I think quite realistic. But, you know, the blatantness of the Chinese authorities who control, of course, all TV stations in admitting that they are, systematically engaged in illegal activity abroad you know that the chinese state is is violating uh, the sovereignty and security of foreign countries is pretty outrageous but we know um you know it's even on the record back in in uh, 2001 when china's number one smuggler Lai changxing managed to uh, gain entry into canada the chinese police in court in a canadian uh, refugee hearing that I attended as a witness for the government myself at the time admitted that they had sent police into Canada to try and convince Mr. Lai to return and that they bought his brother who was in prison in China along with the police delegation to to um, uh, further intimidate Mr. Lai. You know, the people that invited him uh, claimed that they forgot that they sent the invitation. As far as I know, they were not made to account. In other words, people who had tried to deceive our immigration authorities by claiming a business relationship with people that were not businessmen weren't made to account. As far as I'm aware, um, Mr. Lai's brother died in prison not long afterwards. Um, and, uh, and as far as I know, we did nothing, um, you know, to prevent this activity from continuing. And I think that's the lack of action on the part of our, of our government authorities emboldens the Chinese state to, to do more of this kind of thing.
0: Well, and as you mentioned in the piece, actually reminded us, because I think it was a story at the time that we seem to have forgotten pretty quickly. Uh, they had a, a disinformation campaign that was targeted at, a, well, some, let me put it this way, uh, Chinese MPs that were critical of the Chinese government and some of the human rights, uh, etc. Uh, and, and Kenny Chu is maybe the most notable of that. And they lost the last election, but a lot of that was because of this disinformation campaign that was actually being perpetrated by the Chinese government. So they've got their hand in in a lot of of, of what's happening in this country, don't they? Yeah,
1: I think, I mean, that, you know, that disinformation, um, which uh, resulted in, you know, was likely contributing to the loss of seats of of, um, MPs of Chinese origin who you know, had been speaking out honestly about concerns about Chinese malign behavior in Canada, particularly Mr. Chu, who was, you know, had come in in the previous election with an enormous uh, majority and, and who had been an exemplary MP in every way, um, all of a sudden was being smeared in Chinese language media in ways that, that resulted in, in his, uh, you know, his polling numbers just plummeting once that disinformation campaign started and he lost his seat. Um, you know, are we doing anything to prevent this from happening next time? I haven't heard of any action taken by the government or any, uh, you know, reports of of uh, exposing the people who had slandered mr. Mr. Chu in in uh, social media. And you know, if they were so successful last time, then next election would be reasonable to expect they'll be doing a lot more of this, and we'll just be standing idly by watching it happen. So, You know, it's really a question of the government deciding to allocate the resources into addressing um, China's violations of international law and our sovereignty. And so far, we don't see that at all. You know, the police—they just aren't. We just don't put enough resources into it. We just—we just don't prioritize it sufficiently. And as a result, um, evidently, the Chinese regime is just able to run riot over us. And you know, it's just so wrong.
0: But. The response from Canadian authorities, as you point out in the piece, is, is just—it's mind-boggling, really. Uh, they're basically saying these are unsubstantiated rumors and, and speculative stories, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, in other words, the Chinese have given them an explanation as to what these people are doing, as you say, facilitating—you uh, know—that uh, Chinese people that are living here, uh, to, you know, as you say, renewing garbage licenses back home or other things like that. In other words, we're here to help them. Uh, not to help them back into China, uh, but the the Canadian government simply says, "I'll take I'll take that at face value, as if we don't even want to go there right now," mm-hmm. uh, which is interesting given the fact that you know you given the history here, uh, you mentioned of the two Michaels, uh, uh, you know the the treatment of the Uyghurs and uh, you know c- uh, there's so many. So Lu- Sean, who's uh, from Burlington at the time, of course, who's still in prison in China. Uh, he was basically hushed away. I mean, he was—he was for all intents and purposes kidnapped and brought back to China to face trial. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and you know, the Canadian government's response here has been, well, almost non-existent.
1: Well, I mean, the thing is, even if they were simply renewing driver's licenses and and uh, giving uh, Chinese people their uh, identity cards, you know, that's still illegal. They cannot provide Chinese government services. Um, outside of their consular facilities. So these are consular matters that should be handled in the consulates and embassies. And so, you know, establishing Chinese uh, government satellite operations outside of normal diplomatic protocols is definitely completely unacceptable. And I mean, it'll be a frosty day in hell when Canada is able to set up any of these comparable sorts of offices in China. I mean, the purpose of, you know, the, the thing about, diplomatic relations as they're reciprocal and the number of consulates that China can have is is reciprocated by the number of consulates that Canada can have and and these offices whatever they are if they're engaging in chinese government business are are absolute violations of international law and should be closed
0: down immediately why i, I guess this is a two part question uh, why are the Chinese targeting, to such a great extent, Canada and, and Canadian institutions? And, and I guess you know the, the cynical, almost rhetorical question is, why aren't we doing anything about it? And we've just talked about some of the human rights things with the Uyghurs and, of course, what these organizations are doing. Uh, but I think you and I have talked in the past, too. I mean, met the, Canadi- the Chinese government has their hands in many Canadian universities right now uh, because they're funding an awful lot of the R&D into certain programs that the Canadian government either cannot or will not give them the money for. Uh, but that's their in. And, uh, you know, they have uh, access, if not ownership of a lot of the intellectual property that's being developed there. I mean, this is happening on Canadian soil.
1: Yeah, I mean, the universities, you know, their mandate is the free creation and dissemination of knowledge. They, they don't have a mandate for security. And under our system, you know, the universities enjoy a high degree of academic freedom. And aside from which they are the purview of the provinces, so the federal government can't tell them what to do. And so the Chinese um, universities, which are simply organs of the state designed to um, acquire knowledge that serves China's rise, you know, dual-use military technologies, is able to take enormous advantage of this and um, and obtain these um, technologies, which ultimately could be used against us in time of, of uh, uh, conflict with China, which you know, is increasingly looking like it might happen over Taiwan. So, you know, definitely it's the wrong thing for us to be doing. The question is, why aren't we enacting legislation to effectively address this? We need much stronger legislation with regard to the transfer of of classified technologies to agents of a foreign state. And Canada's legislation falls far short of the kind of effective language of our like-minded allies like Australia, United Kingdom and the United States, but there again, there seems to be no political will for us to do anything about this, and uh, God knows why. You know, I mean, I know that our government has been paralyzed in all sorts of areas, you know, Afghanistan, uh, COVID, and, and so on, but, you know, this is this is about national security, and it should be something that should be heading up to the top of the priorities, and it could be addressed if the will was there.
0: Well, and that's why I'm wondering just why that will is and if it even exists. And even even Charles, when it's in our face like this, I mean, you know, you were just talking about the research that's going on at universities and other places. And uh, lest we forget, you know, the, the two Chinese nationals who were working in Winnipeg, it was all COVID research and, and vaccine research. Uh, some pretty confidential, top secret stuff. And they just, the two of them, packed up with God knows what in their briefcases and went back to China. And the government doesn't want to talk about it.
1: I think the problem is that you know, our security agencies are not being forthcoming with us about this, uh, presumably because the, you know, the political class doesn't want to make waves with the Chinese embassy that could lead to China's uh, economic retaliation. But, you know, in other countries, particularly the United States, there's much more openness. I think Canadians deserve to know exactly what went on in that Winnipeg lab. And, and, you know, they, there was an arrest of a, of a senior RCMP, um, officer uh oh two years ago and we still don't know what's going on you know and and i i think that to some extent the security agencies just curate the information and keep it among themselves but you know they should be giving it to parliament so that our our representatives and us can demand that that we respond to these things, you know, the, 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 I mean, that's what democracy is all about. We should, we should be aware of, of what's going on and there shouldn't be this hiding behind screens of state secrecy, which are, are unjustified. You know, there's really no reason why we shouldn't know exactly what happened in the Winnipeg lab, objectively speaking.
0: Well, and it's it's having repercussions, though, isn't it, Charles? I mean, when you look at what's happening globally now, uh, you know, the fact that Canada was excluded from a, a, a conference that was going on about security in, in Southeast Asia and the China Sea, uh, there, we should be there. We uh, Technically, we should be there. But I know that the Five Eyes, our other intelligence partners, including Australia, by the way, in that air, end of the world, and the United States, have been, well, critical, not to the point they probably should be. Maybe they are behind closed doors about Canada's involvement in, in gathering information or responding to information like this. And uh, the, the, the message, as subtle as it might have been, was when are you guys going to get in the game here?
1: Yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, we're excluded from the Australia, UK, US, Indo-Pacific uh, Security Consortium. It looks like the five eyes are being reduced to three eyes because Canada's just not considered a reliable partner who's coming up to the plate. And similarly with the Quad, you know, um, U.S., Australia, um, uh, Japan, um, you know, why is Canada not there? Uh, Last I looked, the U.K. is not an Asia-Pacific country or Indo-Pacific country, and Canada is. And so the fact that we're not being invited to participate in these things is a pretty damning condemnation of of our government's uh, attempt to... To maintain strong business relations with China and economic benefit, uh, and and basically tell the U.S. that we're just not going to be uh, um, collaborating with you in meeting China's uh, security threat, or or addressing China's gross violations of of human rights, like the genocide against the the Uighur minority. You may remember that there was a, a, a unanimous resolution of the Commons condemning that genocide. And then our prime minister uh, abstained and told his entire cabinet to abstain from it. It sends out a signal to the Chinese embassy that you know we're not going to we're not going to challenge you on this. You can you can carry on as as usual. And please, uh, won't you open your market to Canada a little more?
0: It's a a very troubling story, but very necessary that we talk about this and and try to get some response from the government on this. Uh, Charles, as always, thank you so much. First of all, for writing the piece and for spending some time with us today, I really appreciate it.
1: Hope we can do it again soon, Bill.
0: Charles Burton, Senior Fellow for the Centre for Advancing Canada's Interests Abroad and, of course, a member of the Macdonald-Laurier Institute. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show Podcast on 900 CHML. The uh, Lou Marsh Trophy, which is given annually to Canada's top athlete, is going to be renamed, finally. This is uh, the result of an ongoing, uh, passionate, I think, uh, exercise over the last little while by a number of people to try to get the name of the trophy changed and uh, to uh, explain exactly why and what's going to be happening going forward, uh, one of the guys that was leading that charge, of course, is uh, our good friend Mark Hebsher. Mark, of course, is a longtime sports broadcaster, author, and uh, host of on Sports Podcast, uh, which is always an awful lot of fun. Hebsey, it's been a long time. Thanks for being with us again today.
3: Bill, how are you? You waited until football season to call me, I see, huh?
0: <laughs> Actually, <laughs> I waited until this very, very important uh, – this is a very important date in Canadian history, as you know. Yeah. It was on this day way back when that uh, Paul Henderson scored that goal that uh, pretty much changed hockey for us here in Canada.
3: It did. Uh, Unfortunately, Bill, I think it's um, those maybe age 50 plus 60 plus that type of thing. Like my kids who are in their twenties, they, this means nothing to them at all. It's not a significant date because it was, it's too precise. The eighth game, the September 28th, we, those of us who remember where we were, it's significant too, but unfortunately, and, and I know that there's a documentary out that's, you know, you're trying to attract viewers to that time period. What was it like? Context has been done very well. A friend of mine, uh, Dave Bedini, was the director oh, yeah, of that. Yeah. But, but yeah, it's just it's sort of like you're 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 cherry picking a date because it was 50 years ago. But that's a long time ago. And a lot of people are not aware of what went on. Similar to this Lou Marsh, they weren't aware. The name meant you know uh, a champion athlete. The name meant. You know, it had prestige to it at at one time. Not anymore.
0: Well, you talk to the average Canadian sports fan. And um, you're right, Haps. I mean, unless you're passionate about this, I mean, you guys, you know guys and I know guys that could probably right now, you know, give you the goals of system penalty minutes of every guy in the Leaf roster for the last five years. But uh, many of us now... We're interested, and yeah, we're fans, but we don't have that kind of interest. I would guess that 7 out of 10 people that hear about the Lou Marsh Trophy winner every year have no idea who Lou Marsh is or was. Or 9, or nine out of 10. Them. I
3: would say 9 out of 10.
0: Yeah. Uh, but now they do, now because of your work. And, and I know you talk about the work that Gord Miller's done on this, Gord from TSN, of course. Uh, why did it take so long to try to shine the light on this? Or has the light been on it and nobody gave a damn?
3: No, the light's never been on it because nobody ever questioned it before. Because uh, for many years, we, we didn't question as a society why something was named what it was. The assumption was is that it was a great person, a uh, you know, wonderful human being. And, um, you know, uh, this man died young. He was in his 50s uh, in 1936. And the Toronto Star, of which he was the sports editor, immediately upon his death said, we're going to we're going to name an award. We're going to name an award and we're going to name it after Lou Marsh. Um, and, and look, Lou Marsh was a sportsman, and this guy was writing for many, many years and had the largest circulation in all of Canada with the Toronto Star, was also a famous referee, a boxing referee, wrestling referee, hockey referee, uh, and was an athlete. He actually coached Tom Longboat for a couple of years. And that's where the, the, that's where the confusion comes in, because it, people thought that because he coached Tom Longboat and was close with Tom Longboat, that he was not a racist. He couldn't have been because... He was friends with an Indigenous great runner, Tom Longboat. But the opposite was true. Um, he, uh, he would build up Tom Longboat and then he would, um, uh, he would uh, knock him down. He would say terrible things, write terrible things about him, which at the time was so influential, Bill, that people that were reading Lou Marsh were going, oh, this must be true. All Indigenous people must be lazy. All Indigenous people must be shiftless and, and don't take direction. no. And so what he did was he was so influential, I think, Lou Marsh, that he that his whole career was basically sort of energizing this racist uh, sports writing. He was so well, popular that people, uh, he, his readers loved his work so much that why wouldn't they believe what he was saying was true? And this went up until the 1936 Olympics where Marsh went on record by saying, look, uh, uh, he, he was opposed to a boycott. He thought that Germany's problems with Hitler and the Nazis was an internal problem, and they called him colorful, his writing style,
0: where, where really, Bill, he wasn't colorful, he was racist. Well, I mean, he described Longboat at one time as uh, the impeccable Indian was right there smiling like a coon in a watermelon patch. Huh. Uh, the melon was ripe for picking. This is about his, his defeat of another racer sometimes. Uh, actually, uh, the, racer I,
3: was, uh, the racer was an Italian racer whom he called in a different article uh, the olive-skinned macaroni eater. So he didn't play favorites when it came to racism. It could, you could have been Jewish, Chinese, Black, Indigenous, Italian, it mattered not. And, and Toronto back in those days was about as waspy as it could be. And largely thanks to people like Lou Marsh, who continue to
0: perpetuate those myths, those racial stereotypes. Well, and as you said, when he started to push back about Marsh and some of the training, not some of the things he said, but about the training, uh, Marsh turned on him uh, and said, you know, longboat must be handled, not treated. Chances are he's going to wind up in a circus. Yeah. Uh, he, he treated him like a, like a, a racehorse, not a human being.
3: Right. And so, um, and now sort of the question is, all right, we're, we, we we have reached the point and you mentioned Gord Miller. I want to thank Gord, you know, because Gord has hundreds of thousands of followers on social media. And when he, you know, um, through, you know, doing some might have read my article, might have read the article by uh, Professor Janice Forsyth of Western, who uh, uh, is part of her group is actually going to uh, come out with all the information about Lou Marsh, even though the Toronto Star is already with a preemptive strike, said we're changing the name. uh, And we want Toronto Star readers to help us with a new name for the award. uh, Her research is going to be published very shortly. And it's going to be quite damning um, you know, there are a lot of athletes that won the award, the Marsh Award, who didn't know anything about him, but now do. Yeah. And, and in recent years, many many of these people have been, you know, basically said, like, "We, I don't want my name associated with with his name on this award."
0: And listen, I know there are people that some people don't think that John A. McDonald should be vilified and statues torn down. I don't want to get into that, but I mean, we're, it's 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 happening now because as we find out more about these people, and there are some people that are going to say, you know, he, "He was colorful. Come on, he was using metaphors and witticisms." Uh, and you know what? Some of my favorite sports writers do that. Um, you do it all the time when you were you know doing the sports cast every night on you know Sportsline, and uh, but and I've known. Some great ones over the years, Generational, Jim Coleman, Jim Proudfoot, of course, uh, who worked mm-hmm. at the Star for so many years. Uh, Steve Simmons and so many other guys who do it now. And, yeah, they they are witty. They're informative. Uh, but they're not insulting and they're not racist. And, and he was. Right. I, I just think that, you know, I think we need to look at ourselves as Canadians and
3: say, you know, has racism been embedded in Canadian sport for this many years? And the answer is, yeah, it has. It has, and and largely thanks to people like Lou Marsh. And and you can go back and say, well, that was the norm back in those days. Yeah, it was because of people like Lou Marsh, because of his incredible influence. My grandfather told me a story years ago. He knew Lou Marsh. He, My grandfather used to run a variety store uh, on the Danforth uh, out in East End Toronto back in the 30s. And he knew Lou Marsh. He knew all, you know, men of his ilk and, um, you know, he and he did not like him. He didn't like men of that ilk. He refused to buy the Toronto star. Uh, he, he bought the telegram or the other newspapers of the day. And then later the Toronto sun, but, but he was aware of it. But what were you going to do in those days? You're a Jewish living in Toronto. You were going to start to say that the most influential sports writer in the country was an anti-Semite was a racist. No. And so people had to put up with stuff like that. Um, but he told me that, that, he wasn't a nice guy. He wasn't a good guy. And he wasn't, um, and, and he was an anti-Semite and you know, as well as I do, Bill, you know, they, you can pick out people like that at a moment's notice. And then there's other ways where racism is more subtle. And so I think in the case of Lou Marsh, people went, yeah, he was a colorful writer. He wanted to, you know, his job was to get more eyeballs, sell more newspapers. That was the, and how do you do that? how do you attract that well you got to write a certain way you got to be colorful you got to be uh, whatever word they used back in those days and part of that was saying things about people that you knew was 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 common thinking that if you were to tap into the average canadian and say oh i'm going to call this this indigenous this indian person a uh, heap big marathon runner that that your that your readers would would get it and they'd laugh along with you <laughs> that kind of thing it wasn't thought to be racist. Well, it was.
0: Uh, and it, it was then. And sadly, the, both the only people that paid much attention to that were the aggrieved groups, because they, they could see it. Your grandfather could certainly see it. Uh, but, you know, who knows? Somebody living out in Willowdale that got their copy of the Toronto Star and read that, which, hey, that guy's funny. Uh, yeah, Because it doesn't yeah, impact sure. them.
3: Yeah, so, absolutely. And- um, uh, it, it's, um, you know, I, I, how much of it has to do with Toronto? A lot. Uh, Would this have happened in Western Canada? I I don't know. Hard for me to say. But in Toronto, having grown up there, um, and, you know, stories that my grandfather or my uncles or, you know, older generations would tell me, it was not a friendly place if you weren't a white person, if you weren't a WASP. It was was difficult for Catholics. It was difficult for Italian immigrants and Portuguese immigrants and, and Asian immigrants and Jewish immigrants and Eastern European immigrants. It was tough. You couldn't get a job working for the city. You couldn't get a job in banking or insurance. You couldn't be a teacher or a police officer or a firefighter or any of those things if you weren't a WASP.
0: It's the way it was and that, that that's the reality i mean you know, your heritage and oh my i was shanty irish uh, you know from from hamilton i mean and, and it there was the same idea you know sorry you don't qualify for that well at least i'm talking about my ancestors as, as your ancestors right. too uh, but that was the time but uh, you know that we can't just shrug this off and say well that was then this is now i mean uh, there's and this is not a reckoning this is simply i think correcting something that needed to be corrected and uh, I guess the star finally got dragged into this, I, your influence, Gord's influence, uh, you know, the, the work that's, uh, that's being done, of course, uh, Professor Forsyth at Western as well.
3: Terrific uh, work. And- I'm really looking forward to the, uh, her research uh, for it being published. Even though the star has already said we're going to change the name, I'm really I'm interested to see um, what they've come up with, because I just think that it's going to be eye opening. Wow. Wow, this guy was really, and he was that trusted that they left his name on the trophy for that many years, and no one said anything or did anything about it. Like certainly the Toronto Star wasn't gonna start their own investigation, right? but and you know, and other newspapers are not gonna now you're gonna dive into now we're gonna go after one of our competitors to find out that you know, so nobody really had the interest uh, I guess until you know, more recently where, where we go back and we look at things that people said and wrote and said, that was horrible. What a terrible, and then, you know, I I don't recall the exact moment where it was, let's, let's delve into Lou Marsh's writing. But I think it was every year that the award came out for the last number of years where I went, wait a minute, man, you know, and, and Bruce Kidd, professor Bruce Kidd, the winner of the Lou Marsh award in 61, I think told me privately, he said, I'm really not happy with my name being, I don't call it that, that anymore. And a few other athletes who had said, no, I, I heard he wasn't the nicest guy. Don't, you know, but everyone else thought, oh, the Lou Marsh Award, you know, oh, my God, what, a you know, like the Congressional Medal of Honor or something like that, or the Purple Heart. No way. But
0: just let me spin back back to those days because you mentioned this in, in that op-ed piece that was published back in November, and I remember you were on the program. We talked about uh-huh. that at the time, and, and you mentioned about his comments about you know this this thing with the the, the Nazis and the Jews. No, it's no big deal. It's all being right. overblown. At the same time, one of their other top reporters, very well respected uh, correspondent named Matthew Halton, was reporting about the persecution of the Jews, about how their human rights were being taken away, their property was being taken away. That was page one. Then in the sports section is this. Where were the editorial people in there to say, wait a second, something's not jiving here? Well, that's, I mean, um, Matthew Halton, uh, uh, David
3: Halton's father, uh, fine CBC correspondent David Halton, his father, Matthew, yeah. So you're working for the same newspaper, right? Your copy is going through some of the same editors, or at least editors that are having meetings going, you know, what have you got? What have you got? And in the middle of this, you've got a guy that's really cozy with the Canadian Olympic Committee, Lou Marsh. You know, I'm sure there was, you know, I don't know if money was handed over. That's not for me to say, but there was some influence there. There was some, look, you write some nice things about us and don't get into too much and we'll be fine with you. So it, he was in a conflict of interest, Lou Marsh, because he didn't want to say stuff against the Canadian Olympic Committee like, oh, we should boycott the 36 Olympics because the Nazis are, you know, going are overrunning the country. But then, of course, when the photographers and newspapermen come from other countries, they put on, you know, when the 36 Olympics came on, they took down all the signs about forbidding Jews, mm-hmm. all of that, so that the world media got, didn't see any of that at all. And it took reporters like Matthew Halton. But for Lou Marsh to say that that Nazi Nazism is an internal Jewish uh, internal German problem at that time kind of went overlooked. It kind of did. It was like because because Canadians were like, no, 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 we want to perform in the Olympics. We're interested in the Olympic Games. They didn't know about the politics of Germany, and many didn't care. Quite frankly, it was not for men like Matthew Halton. We wouldn't have known. But the Jewish world knew about it, Bill. They knew. They didn't want to send – parents didn't want to send – Sammy Lufspring's parents didn't want to send him to Nazi Germany. So instead, uh, Lufspring and a few other athletes that were going to go to the Olympic Games – uh they boycotted on their own and 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 they actually went there was a, another games that were going to take place on alternate games in barcelona but the first day of the meetings i think was the day that the spanish civil war broke out and so that idea was something happened there forget it but but you know you're you're talking about it wasn't that many years ago no the w- world didn't know this is before world war one and so, world war ii and so You know, the idea that the Lou Marshes of the world were going, come on, Canadians, let's let's root our Canadian athletes on and see how well we can do against the rest of the world. And rah, 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 you know, was more important than any atrocities that were taking place in in Germany, even though his own reporter at the Toronto Star, Halton, was sending back these dispatches as to how terrible it was and had been for three or four years.
0: Disgusting. Uh, anyway, uh, it's it's going to change. Uh, they're, they're asking readers, I guess, for their input into this. And uh, the name apparently or the new name is going to be selected in time for the uh, award later on this year. I, I'll go right back. I know we're almost out of time here. Uh, your, your suggestion, by the way, in the op-ed piece you wrote last year, of course, Terry Fox, I think, is an ideal situation. But uh, it's pretty much up to them because it's really their award, isn't it?
3: Right. It's Well, here's the thing. Damian Cox pointed out to
0: me, and he's right, that the, there already is a Terry Fox Award.
3: It has been for a number of years. It's called the Terry Fox Humanitarian Award. Yeah. So when we use the word award, right, it, this doesn't fall into the category of sports awards, you know, the Rocket Richard Award for the top scorer. The, you know, this is different. Now, remember, the Canadian Press Athlete of the Year, Male Athlete of the Year, is the Lionel Conacher Award. And for the Female Athlete of the Year, it's the Bobby Rosenfeld Award. Mm-hmm. so there's two awards by canadian press that have been that have been handed out for many many years as long as the lou marsh award was those are separate from this particular award this is a toronto star award right and so for the entire country to be involved in this uh is important but this is only for toronto star readers i guess to make their come up with their um uh, suggestion as to how, who the award should be renamed after. So the Terry Fox thing was, is great in principle, and it's a no-brainer, slam dunk, but there already is a Terry Fox Humanitarian Award. My suggestion now, w- is the, the Jean Bellevaux Award, because Here's I think time. you want this award to be emblematic of an a- not just a great athlete, but someone who brought more to the table. And in yeah. the opposite of what Lou Marsh represented, which he would tear people down, I want someone, I would like to see the name of someone who would build people up, who was had some class and professionalism, as well as uh, being a tremendous athlete. And I think Jean Beliveau, across the country, I don't think anyone would say, not a good choice.
2: Even oh, the diehard choice.
3: Montreal Canadiens haters would not say, <laughs> no, Jean, be- Jean Beliveau is, is right, and I think would be... I think it would. Be, he would be honored. He never won the Lou Marsh Trophy. That's the irony. Well,
0: oh, and that's an. Uh, by the way, Hebsy on Sports is a great podcast. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Always mm-hmm. a lot of fun. Hebs, let's. I gotta do this again sooner. This is a lot of fun. Thanks for joining us today.
3: Anytime, Bill. Thanks, and say, and all my friends in London and Hamilton and every. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, and uh, always happy
0: to be on with you.